Welcome to this episode in our podcast series. My name is Tamar Garb. I'm the director of the Institute of Advanced Studies and a historian and curator of South African visual histories, especially photography. And it's my pleasure today to be in conversation with Jacob Glamini, assistant professor of history at Princeton University. Jacob started out as a journalist and has become a consummate writer in a number of fields, interweaving personal perspectives and experience with assiduous, archivally-based histories of South Africa that challenge received narratives and popular wisdom, and the Manichaean or binary thinking that characterizes much political discourse today. And we're going to get to those in a minute, I hope, in our conversation. This conversation, in fact, marks the appearance of two important new books, The Terrorist Album and Safari Nation both just published this year, which is an incredible achievement in itself. And both of these books point to some central themes that have characterized Jacob's work and go right back to his first book, Native Nostalgia, which was published in 2009. It's a book that asked difficult questions and asked us to face up to difficult truths about the past. And I think that is really, Jacob, what characterizes your work so deeply. You know, it isn't always comfortable reading, but it's always incredibly stimulating reading. So I'm really excited to enter into this conversation and dialogue with you and want to thank you really for agreeing to engage with us about your work. So I wanted to just start off just very broadly, Jacob, if you wouldn't mind, just thinking about the project of historical writing. You're committed to a particular way of thinking about the past and to the work of the historian. What is it about the role of the historian that you think is so important? And what is the politics of history writing for you? The politics of writing for me is informed by my understanding of the role of history in how we see the present. So the role of history in how we think about, you know, where we are and what it means to be where we are as South Africans. And I mean this at the level of class, I mean it at the level of race, at the level of gender, you know, sexual orientation. So how does the past determine the ways in which we see phenomena? That for me is absolutely important, you know, when it comes to the politics of writing history. But there's also, I think, another dimension to this, and that is to try and understand the centrality of race in South African history without making race all determining. So cutting race down to analytical size in ways that don't dismiss its importance, because race matters, and it matters in the most pernicious ways possible. But it also doesn't determine everything that people do, the way that people go about their life. So how one negotiates these two is, for me, a challenge that is constant and a challenge that I don't always meet, but it's a challenge that I'm drawn to. Understanding the centrality of race while also understanding that race doesn't explain everything. So that's part of the work that I'm trying to do. I'm very taken by your idea of the present tense and the tensions of the present, which is both the time of now, but it's also the anxiety in which we live. And it's interesting that you take the conversation to the conundrum of race right at the start, because as South Africans, we are pickled in race. Um, you write quite beautifully, I think, in one of your books, I think it might have been in the Safari book, around interpolation about how as South Africans we are all interpolated and we rise to the call of racial determinism because that is how we've been produced as subjects. And what it is to live with and think with those interpolations is, I think, part of the tension that we inhabit. 
Absolutely, absolutely. To add to what you just said, Tama, is to understand that interpolation not as direct correspondence, right? There's interpolation and there's response. But to understand, you know, those moments where there is no one-to-one correspondence, right? That if you are interpolated as a native, you respond as a native. And the interpolation and the response match, you know, transparently and seamlessly. So what interests me are those moments where the two don't always go together. The moments where the response is always much bigger than what the interpolation was initially. So that's some of what draws me, that's some of what interests me in both the centrality, but also the marginality of race. You know, those moments where race is absolutely crucial, where you cannot understand anything without understanding race, but also those moments where you have to put race aside and say, what else is going on here? So just to illustrate this point, one of the stories I tell in the terrorist album is of fathers who actually inform on their sons on behalf of the security police. In both instances, it's the personal that is absolutely key to unlocking uh, you know, that mystery. So why would fathers do this to their own sons? In the one case, it's a descendant of Holocaust survivors you know, from Hungary who now lives in South Africa and sees his son getting involved in the anti-apartheid movement and worries that this might actually put the whole family at risk again. Of course, this might be self-serving as an explanation for why the father would betray his son, but I think it's something that we have to take seriously. In the second case, there's a divorce at the heart of the matter. You know, the father and the mother get divorced, they split the family, right? Surprise, surprise. And people take different loyalties, and these then shape how people respond to one another, but also how they respond to the state. And so the father is acting for the state against his son, in part because of the discord that comes out of the divorce. So taking that story and taking it seriously, you know, without reducing it to race is absolutely crucial. It's really interesting. I think part of what's interesting about the way in which you think about race is the fracture, the failure of race. And you talk about failure quite a lot in the work, the failure of the bureaucratic system of the apartheid state, the apparent belief in its efficiency and effectiveness, but actually the failures of it actually to police that which it sets out to police in some ways, um, which I find very interesting, but also the failures and fractures in subject formation and in identity formation. So you talk very strongly against the determinism of apartheid. So at the same time as we're all, in a sense, pickled in race, as I said earlier, and our life chances and opportunities are determined by those categorizations and racializations, there are all these ways in which the edifice crumbles. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I'm fascinated by the stories you tell and by the way in which the stories of individuation and individual lives really show the fault lines and the cracks in the edifice. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I quite like the phrase, the pickled in race, because I mean, that's what we are. That's what we are. But then there are also those moments where we transcend that. There are also those moments where we're much bigger than that. And that, for me, is actually what's interesting. And I do this in part, you know, looking at those moments where race explains it all and then those moments where race doesn't explain it all. Because I think this helps us, right? Appreciating these two moments, I think, helps us understand why the apartheid state failed, right? I write somewhere that the anti-apartheid movement sang a good war, but it didn't actually fight a good war, right? If you look at it militarily, we didn't fight a good war, but we sang a good war. What then, right, if not the military option? So what then accounts for the success of the anti-apartheid movement? And it did succeed. And I think it's precisely that inability of the state to capture in total the individual lives of people. It's that failure to be authoritarian, that failure to be total as an institution. 
And it failed in part because, you know, you never can control in total how people react, how people feel, and how people live. There's no full account of how individual lives conduct themselves. And this, for me, is quite interesting because if there's one fantasy that has lived on despite the end of apartheid, it's precisely this idea that the state can do it all. You know, that the state can just decide that here's what we're going to do and then goes out and does it. In fact, you see this with the response to COVID in South Africa. The way in which the state has become a nanny state in parts, you know, the way in which the police and the military have actually come out in full force because they get to do things that they can't do otherwise, right? Which is to kick people around, to do all kinds of things that only can do in an authoritarian state, right? But even there, like we know about the failures, right? We know about the lack of success. And I think it's important to remind ourselves as we try to move away from the legacy of apartheid, I don't know if we ever can, that the state can't do it all. At the same time, and I mean, I I noted when I was reading your work how persuasive you are about the failures of the state to coerce the subject into complete conformity. But at the same time, I was also reminded of my own experience growing up, as I did in South Africa in the 70s, particularly, and you write a lot about the 70s, about the culture of fear, which was really, really so pervasive. And one place, I think, where the state was very powerful was to mask its inefficiencies, It was a bullying state, wasn't it? And we were all bullied by it. And I have a visceral memory of that. Oh, absolutely. One of the revelations for me, and this actually goes to the heart of what you just identified to me. One of the revelations for me was, you know, in my interviews with former security police officers, the discovery of just how ordinary these people are, just how ordinary. And the struggle that ensues from this encounter where I'm trying to match the menace to the face, you know, where I'm looking at these pathetic figures and trying to think back to, you know, in my case, the 1980s, and to look at them and say, so you were the sources of my fear, you were the sources of anxiety, and here you are, as pathetic as can be. Like, how is this possible? And I think it's possible in part because the state was successful at masking its own inefficiencies, broadcasting the potential power it had not just to instill fear in people, but to actually cause harm. And so one of the arguments I make in the terrorist album is that we oftentimes, I think, make the mistake of mistaking the state's brutality for efficiency, when the two are not the same thing. Brutality is one thing, efficiency is something different altogether. And I think this is important to remember. But you're right, the 70s, just from my reading of the literature, because I think I was too young to get a sense of this, you know, the 80s is when I you know, come into my own. I remember the fear. I remember the smell of tear gas and the paralyzing, paralyzing taste. It's, it's pepper, but too much pepper. You know, I never can describe it in full, but it's not just the taste of pepper that's overpowering, overwhelming, but also the fear that comes after the cloud has lifted, right? And I think that that also goes someplace to understanding one of the themes of your work, which is to think not only about self-conscious collaborators, but to think about complicity in the bystander. And this is one of the themes that I think characterizes a lot of your writing is you ask the question, how did the apartheid state manage to last as long as it did and to affect the brutal violence that it managed to affect? And part of your answer in successive books and projects is to say that, you know, so many of us lived lives that ended up as being complicit participants in the culture of which we were a part And I think that this tracking of both collaboration on the one hand and the passivity of a kind of tolerance 
is really interesting. And it's not unrelated to the question of fear, because I do think that subjects were made docile. This is not to exonerate people, but it's to talk about the kind of quiet violence that pervaded the social and how people became coerced into a kind of passive compliance. Absolutely. I think the fog of fear, but also I think the fog of misunderstanding, I think marked people's appreciation of the state and what it was capable of doing. Lifted, and it's no coincidence here, I think, I think lifted the moment we started getting more and more stories about the corruption, right? just the rank corruption of the apartheid order, just how immoral these people were. I think there is that correspondence that the moment you start seeing those stories that do more and more to expose the petty corruption, you know, the inconsistencies, it's at that moment I think people start thinking, not everyone obviously, but I think people start thinking like, wait a second, this is not what we think it was. This is maybe not the state that is to be feared in the way that people have feared it. How many people act on that realization? I think the numbers are small. I think that the 70s, going into the 80s, I think these are the crucial moments where you see the shift in people, you know, appreciating that, well, actually, the state is not what it's cracked up to be. You see it also in some of the most spectacular forms of apartheid. You know, so think about the Crew Barriers Act. It takes years after the introduction of the Crew Barriers Act for the apartheid government to actually start effecting some of its own structures. Right? They try and destroy District 6 in Cape Town. And then, you know, halfway through, they actually abandon the project. I mean, they kick people out. They kick people of color out. But halfway through, the district sector is actually not destroyed in total. That something similar happens in 55 to Sophia Town, where they start destroying, but then halfway through, they actually stop. And so this is not the all-conquering state that I think we wanted to believe it was for propaganda purposes, but also just, I think, to make ourselves, especially those of us who, I think, chose the path of least resistance, you know, I wanted to believe that you can't do anything because if you do, then the state will crush you, right? Mm. And I think this is important. And then, of course, collaboration is a loaded, loaded term. So how one thinks about it in the absence of a better term to accommodate, you know, all the complexities of what gets lumped into the notion of collaboration is something that I think exercises me quite a bit because I have to think constantly about the choices that people made because they had to make those choices, right? I'm thinking in particular of, you know, parents who had no choice but to send their kids to bunter school education institutions, if that makes any sense. Right? Yeah. That collaboration, I mean, is that giving legitimacy to what was fundamentally a, a corrupt system? Or was it an instance of people who had to make do, you know, people who had to live because that's what was called for them to do? Well, I think that's very interesting because I think the whole complexity of thinking about the spectrum in which people live from complete collaboration and actually betraying, as you said, sons and fathers and family members and comrades on the one hand, to a kind of passive collusion or complicity with a system into which you were completely locked and through which you had to find you know, a meaning in life. There is a huge spectrum there. And I think that it's really interesting to think about Imagine, though, that in terms of the politics of South African history, you must encounter quite a lot of pushback because there is such a need to read this history in relation to the opposition of victim and perpetrator. And so the minute you start trying to complicate the relationship, that binary between victim and perpetrator, you yourself are seen to be a collaborator or colluder. So I'm just interested to know how you navigate that. Or worse, right? I've been called a black conservative. You know, someone has threatened to lynch me. Uh, yeah, it gets worse than that. So here's where I think I feel drawn to. 
in those forms of collaboration that in some ways are clear cut, right? In some ways are pretty obvious so that this person was working for the security police. And so this is you know, pretty obvious. But to not just leave it at that, and not just leave it at saying, well, so-and-so worked for the security police, but to try and understand why this person did that. And to do that as a way of saying, for me to make sense of why this person would take this kind of job or would do this kind of thing, I first have to, in some ways, cut race down to analytical size, right? So that it's not just an easy case of saying, well, this is a collaborator because it happens to be a black person working for the security police. Because I think what we do all too often in our work on South African history is to, in some ways, leave race unexplained, but leave it unexplained in ways that just assume that you know, if someone is black and they're working for the police, then automatically they're collaborators. Right. I think that jump is too easy, but it doesn't actually explain anything. And so what I try and do is to say, you know what, let's start from the assumption that race itself is, you know, to state the obvious, is a construct, is a construct that is constantly in the making, but also constantly under contest. What it means to be black is never a subtle question. Right? This, of course, applies to any other category. This is never a subtle question. So rather than look at black faces and the security police as faces of collaboration, we might want to look at what these faces tell us about the meaning of blackness or the multiplicity of understandings. Because quite a few of the people that I speak to who work for the security police did so because they believed in the project. You know, you speak to some of these former homeland bureaucrats, you know, so people who, who staff these institutions of organization, they believed in they believe that through the trans guy, you could create a Casa homeland, you could create a Casa nation state, et cetera, et cetera. And we have to take that seriously. We don't have to agree with it politically, but taking it seriously and asking ourselves, okay, so what does this tell us about our own assumptions about race and what sort of loyalties race determines? I think these are questions that we need to ask. And I don't know if enough of us are asking those questions. Well, it's difficult because the politics of race now have, it's a weird thing, isn't it, in South Africa? I'm always distressed by the way in which we seem to be doing apartheid's work for it, in the sense that, you know, we were racialized under apartheid by the invention of these categories, not only in South Africa, but in very specific ways, as you so well know, in South Africa. And it always startles me that these categories remain operative. And I know that some people would say, oh, well, you're going back to the fantasy of some kind of rainbow, kumbaya, non-racial, whatever world, that yeah. that's the thing of the past. And, you know, we are where we are. But people still use these concepts as if they are natural concepts rather than, you know, historical inventions. And what we do with that as historical workers is obviously very interesting, but also extremely unsettling often. One gets positioned as somebody who's, you know, not really understanding the power politics of today because you refuse to use those categories. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think part of it has to do with the approach taken at the formal end of apartheid. You know, the approach taken that we would introduce affirmative action, that, that we would introduce employment equity, which essentially transformed the struggle against apartheid into a civil rights struggle whereby what you were fighting for was essentially the extension of basic rights to the totality of the citizenry. Whereas another way out, I think, might have been to say the institution at its core, I mean, South African society at its very core, is fundamentally, you know, corrupted, corrupted not just by racism that came with colonialism, that came with capitalism, but, you know, with the forms that our institutions had taken coming out of this history. And that what you needed to transform was society in its totality. 
this might sound, you know, romanticizing and idealistic, but I think to think much more creatively about what transformation should mean after the end of apartheid than just thinking that, you know, what we need is a bigger black middle class, right? You know, what we need are more black students at university. Of course, these things are important, but using them, I think, as markers of our progress was, I think, a failure of the imagination. Because what we ended up doing, so with affirmative action, you know, the most well-known example, was in some ways buttressing the black elite that actually had been elite under apartheid. They were, you know, the people best placed to benefit from these changes. You know, Patrice Motsepe, the richest black person in South Africa right now, I mean, he comes out of the homeland elite, right? This is someone who was at wits at the height of the struggle against apartheid and, you know, had nothing to do with the anti-apartheid struggle. But of course, he then becomes the black face of black entitlement, the black face of success, after the end of apartheid, because he's the richest black person and because of the changes that have come before. Meanwhile, the gap between him, the richest black person in South Africa, and the poorest black person in South Africa is as big, if not bigger, than it's ever been. So these, for me, are the failures of the imagination. Where we had an opportunity, limited, I know. We make our own history, but we don't choose the circumstance. But I think there are options that could have been taken, but were not taken. Well, I mean, you obviously are referring to the issue of class, which is so huge, and the other kinds of ways in which identity is fractured. And race, of course, is so overwhelming and powerful in South Africa that one sometimes can forget these other determining factors. So I think that that's really interesting. But what is interesting for me, I can hear political resonance and alignment with a lot of the younger people in South Africa who are so disillusioned with the parents' generation, with the struggle generation. And yet the way in which race is mobilized in that generation is not the way in which you are comfortable with using it. I'm thinking of the fallists and the way in which a certain kind of, you might say, racial essentialism or a kind of strategic essentialism is so operative in those debates. I'm interested to know how you navigate that position in relation to the younger generation now, those in their 20s or whatever, who are the fallists. Your question is absolutely crucial, but it's also, I think, allowing me to it's almost to flag one of the new projects I'm trying to develop. Because one of the many things that I've been struck by coming out of the forest movement in South Africa is the constant resort to trauma. Right? So I've had people mention political trauma. I, I couldn't tell you what that is. I mean, I think I know what people are referring to. I've had you know, people talking about the story of trauma. And this actually bothers me because in some ways, this is the same generation that was born in the midst of a brutal, brutal and bloody civil war in South Africa, right? a civil war that people don't talk about, a civil war that between, you know, 1990 and 1994 claimed something like 12,000 lives. So when I think about trauma, this is what I want to go back to, you know, the experience of that civil war, an experience that, you know, my family lived through, that for me is an important, I think, point to go back to, because for trauma, I think, to make sense, it has to be grounded, it has to be rooted, it has to be, you know, formed by a particular experience, right? Not some ethereal sense of feeling wounded or feeling hurt. And of course, I'm not dismissing the transference of experience from one generation to another. I think this is important. And I think part of what the forests are doing is reminding us of the ways in which experience lives on from generation to generation. But where I get off the train with the fallers is when they went to speak of a middle-class trauma that comes from alienation, that comes from being in institutions where they are on account of their class backgrounds, you know, middle-class backgrounds, but then want to use a sense of generalized trauma in ways that obscure these real material experiences of trauma. 
So when I think about trauma, this is the work I'm trying to develop. I want to go back to that experience of that civil war and to talk to people who live through it as combatants, you know, who live through it as victims, right? And sometimes it's both competence and victims and say, let's talk about what this means to you. Let's talk about how you understand this experience and then have that be a part of the conversation. Because it is telling to me that in dismissing Mandela's generation, for example, and in calling him a sellout and a, and a collaborator, and at the same time talking about black trauma, that what the police are doing, and, and of course they're exceptions. This is not a, you know, like a monochromatic movement, right? it's a complicated movement. But I think on the whole, there is this dismissiveness of the complexity of our own history, but also a blindness to some concrete historical cases that were lived through by people who, because they're working class, you know, because they never got out of Katlo, my hometown, because they never got out of these townships, right, can never be articulated in English, can never be articulated on the campus at UCT or at WITS. Because the people who, you know, are in a position to articulate this are not present in these moments. I think that's absolutely fascinating. It raises all sorts of questions in my mind. I mean, you know, we were taught to think of that civil war as black on black violence and as yeah. something that was manipulated by the apartheid regime. And so we saw it as another manifestation, didn't we? Or that's how we were taught to think about it, of a kind of white, uber powerful manipulation. So that, I think, is really interesting to deal with that and expose it as a myth, if it is a myth, and then see what's going on around that. So I think that's very interesting, and I'm fascinated to hear how you might do that. But another thing that also comes to mind in listening to you is that, you know, there is interesting work on intergenerational trauma that's going on in South Africa. I think of the work that Pumla Gaborda-Madikizela is doing, for example, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and the work of, you know, very, very interesting stuff of, like, Kalata, Fort Kalata's son, who's written his book, or, like, you know, Kusani's daughter. And we now have the generation of the children of yeah. the struggle heroes dealing yeah. with their own pain and trauma, etc. And they become emblematic, don't they, of a whole generation. That's the age group, really. Yeah. So you've got all of that. I mean, there are multiple levels in which to think about it. But the other one that came to mind, actually, when I was reading your work, and I'm not sure how much work has been done on this, is what is the trauma of the child of the collaborator or the passive bystander? So there's interesting work that's come out, say, in Germany or in Europe about the children of Nazi bystanders, etc. But I wonder if in South Africa there has yet been work done on what it is to be the child of the collaborator or bystander. And I wonder whether that's something that you've thought about. That certainly, I'm not aware of any work that has been done on this. I did try to do some work on this, in part because I thought this would be quite catchy, but also quite interesting. So one of the first people to be necklaced, you know, in the 1984 Township Uprisings was a man named Jacob Zamini, who by all accounts was a horrible human being, corrupt, abusive. Your uh, namesake, he has the same name as you. Absolutely, absolutely. This was in Shopville, of all places. And he's actually one of the first people to be necklaced, you know, in 1984. And he's necklaced in part because there's a protest in Shopville because he as a deputy mayor has just raised rents. This is at the height of, you know, mass unemployment and people are poor. So there's a lot of unhappiness. But it's also coincidental to what's happening with the tricameral and reforms, et cetera, et cetera. And he pulls out a firearm because all black councillors are issued with firearms, you know, when the protests start. And he pulls out a fireman and shoots and I think injures one of the protesters. And then that then becomes a spark. And he's necklaced. And I got interested. This is my namesake, but it's also Shopville, which is, you know, has all these multi-layers of epic violence, if we can call it that. But also, he's a family man. You know, he had three kids, as I understand it, who were present when this happened. 
when the father was necklaced. One of the children lost his mind. The other became an alcoholic, and I never found out what happened to the third. The mother also lost her mind. I got interested in the story, and I wanted to get close to the family to see if I could tell that story, that in some ways this is what it looks like from the other side. And uh, the family were not interested, for reasons I can totally understand. You know, they were not interested. I think part of it had to do with the fact that the one son who seemed to have made it out okay, right? and of course we can never know what psychic traumas, uh, you know, he carries with him, I think was, was, was just focused on living, right? was just focused on making it into the new South Africa. And the last thing he wanted was A, to be reminded, but also for people to be reminded that, oh, he's so-and-so's son. So there was that. And then in Ascari, you know, I write about Clarice Deeper. And there again, the price that his children have paid is massive. You know, mental health issues, you know, depression, same story you know, with the widow. And there again, you know, I thought these are stories that I think have to be included in a conversation about the traumas of the past. And so I've been drawn to some of the work that some scholars are looking back at that moment of violence and saying, was it necessary? And of course, you know, Mandela in his autobiography makes the argument that we had no choice. But knowing what we now know about what that violence did, you know, how it unleashed uh, uncontrollable forces, I think it's a question worth asking. It's a question worth asking in light of what we know happened to people who suffered personally because of that violence. That's really interesting. I want to just stretch you in another direction, if you wouldn't mind, and that is just to think of your own position as a scholar, situated as you are within the American Academy which provides you with a kind of very interesting viewpoint as a scholar of African history and of African origin, um, sitting within the American Academy and watching the Black Lives Matter movement unfold, as well as the theorization of blackness as it now functions within the American Academy, which seems to me to be very different than the way in which you think about the racialization of blackness within the context of South Africa. So I wanted to get your take on how you position yourself in relation to those debates, the ontology of blackness, the way that blackness is used now in a very, very particular way within American critical theory and critical literature, and the tendency amongst a lot of younger South African scholars to work with that language and with that vocabulary, black pain being one of the foremost categories amongst them. How do you situate yourself in relation to those debates? So here, this is where I think my debt to Paul Gilroy, I think, is most obvious. If there's one thing that I took from him when he was my teacher, in some ways, I think it built on a skepticism or suspicion that I actually brought with me to the U.S. But if there's one thing that his teachings have taught me is this, I think, moral agency, but also moral need to be suspicious of race, to be open to its use for strategic political purposes, but also to be aware of its limits and limitations, to be aware of the dangers always inherent in race as a category of mobilization, as an instrument of mobilization. And so this is how I look at the Black Lives Matter movement, that I am, I think, politically in support of it, but also aware of what I see as its limitations. You know, one is the essentializing of blackness as a category. The, as I see, the American tendency to, in some ways, ethnicize blackness, to, to transform blackness away from a political category into an ethnicity. That I'm suspicious of. And I'm suspicious of that because I think it collapses what is a complicated, messy conglomeration of blacknesses. You know, think of migrants coming to the U.S. And it's also quite significant that like many of the prominent black members or activists 
for leaders of Black Lives Matter movement are actually children of recent migrants, you know, to the U.S., from West Africa largely, but other parts of Africa. So that for me is quite interesting. I see this and, and I appreciate it for what it is, but I also see the limitations of treating blackness as a simplified, singular ethnicity when it's actually not an ethnicity. And I don't think it should be an ethnicity. So there's that going on. But I'm also, I think, suspicious as a non-American of the tendency to take what's a U.S. case and to make that a universal case about black struggles, which is where I then take issue with South Africans who want to buy willy-nilly into the Black Lives Matter project in the U.S. in ways that elide all kinds of fissures and contradictions within the South African project itself. So we have to ignore the... I mean, some of the criminal gaps between rich and poor, between middle class and poor in South Africa, in favor of articulating a position that makes it seem as if Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter the same way. And we know that there are differences and that these are differences that have as much to do with white supremacy. As, I mean, I'm not conflating white supremacy to other forms of discrimination, but I think it's important to be alive to the differences within different black communities so that we don't make it sound as if all black people are the same, which in some ways is a theme that is constant in my work, because I'm constantly trying to caution against this assumption that every black person suffered under apartheid the same way, when we know that they did not, when we know that there were differences, and they had to do with one's choices, they had to do with one's positionality, and you know, had to do with class a lot of the time. And one of the things that's so extraordinary about your work is the way in which you use the sources at your disposal, whether it's interviewing people or using archival sources or working with photographs and material culture, reading against the grain, looking at what they can't tell you as well as what they can tell you. This incredible rich engagement with the material history of the location that you're dealing with, which creates a kind of granularity and preciseness to the histories and in fact flies in the face of these huge overriding generalizing concepts. So, you know, that's so much part of your work. Oh, absolutely. You know, thanks for that. I mean, I'm no positivist, right? I, mean, I guess I was world trained in that sense. And I have this healthy skepticism towards the archive as archive, right? But at the same time, I know that there's something in there. There's something that one can work with, that one can use this to the extent that one can to shed light on some aspect of the past. Of course, archives, by their very nature, can never give us a full picture. Of but they course. do give us insight. They do give us openings that we can then pursue. And so this is what draws me. And it's also, I think, a useful way to be able to go into the archive and come out with something that allows you to say, well, wait a second. Here's a moment where race reaches its own limits. Right? Here's a moment where race perhaps explain this, but not in total. And that, for me, is something that I think I have to carry along at all times. But I also want to be able to tell stories that I don't do this with Native Nostalgia because that was a polemical piece, but I try and do this with the other word to create openings that other scholars, better positioned, better equipped, can then pursue. So what is it about Black collaborators as a category that, you know, one can say meaningfully, that one can look at productively? And for that, I think, to happen, for that kind of work to happen, we have to move away from the moralizing, we have to move away from the essentializing and look at the granular and look at the peculiarities, right? What is it about Kuzulu Natal that allows for the development of a particular form of Zulu ethno-nationalism? Why is the same thing not happening among Zulu speakers and Gauteng? And it's not enough to say, well, proletarianization, right? It's not enough to say industrialization helps explain it. I think there's something else going on there. 
you know, it's only by taking seriously what's available as embodied memories, you know, what's available as documentary texts, as archival material, as photography, what's available as memories. Taking that seriously, I think, is what will create these openings that will allow us to gain a better understanding of our own history. One of the other things that I wanted to talk more with you about is in the terrorist album, the role to, that photographs play in a really interesting sense of what photographs don't tell us, because as you say, you have to wrap them in words and you have to situate them and contextualize them in order to allow them to have an eloquence, really. And I find that very interesting. And I, I was sort of struck by the thinking with the album as a kind of bureaucratic technology in its totality, into which the photographs, which are actually singularly uninformative. I was struck yeah. by how many times people didn't recognize themselves. <laughs> and you, and I'm yeah. aware of that. I mean, as are you, I'm sure if you look at an old passport photograph, you think, God, is that me? It doesn't look like me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The photographs are actually really bad um, often, particularly mugshots, yeah. are really yeah. bad at telling us what we look like and telling others what we look like. So yeah. the complete Salaciousness at the heart of this identificatory edifice is yeah, so yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So I have been thinking, for example, I'd be quite keen, you know, what you make of my claim that photographs are mute. I think it's an interesting question because I think that they're mediated representations. So they speak in relation to the context within which they sit. They aren't, in my view, in themselves pregnant with meaning. Yeah. They depend very much on the culture of mediation. And mugshots in particular, mugshots are, in my view, a very impoverished form of photographic language because they can only speak with the edifice, whether it's a colonial or whether it's incarceral or whether it's legislative or whatever kind of economy that determines the way they're read. I mean, they are extremely formulaic, as you know, and all the photographs in the book, except for one or two, what is articulate is the formula. The formula is what speaks rather than the individual iteration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, this can't be the last word on the album. It can't be the last word on the subject. So I'm hoping that photographic historians will come along and do something richer. I know there's some people at VET doing work in the digital arts. I'm hoping that they'll come along and say, here's an opening. You no, know, let's work with the skill sets that we have. Thank you. We could go on for hours and hours. I have a list of things I'm still dying to engage with. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been really, really fascinating to hear your sense of things now. And I really look forward to following the work on the line. And Dama, thank you so, so much for your support over the years. And thanks for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.